0: Come to the time in our service where we continue to worship, although a lot of times we've been conditioned to think the worship part's over and now we're either coming to the highlight or in probably our case the next thing. Uh, but it is really important that we recognize that, as Jack had pointed out, there is a flow that's intended for our, our services. We approach with a recognition of the holiness of God. And we give him praise for he's worthy to receive praise, and he's worthy of it whether we feel like giving it, whether we're worthy of giving it or not. It's Then we acknowledge the reality of our lives, not only the condition that we were born in, which is sin, but the struggle that we have, because there's really no point in worshipping a God, no matter how worthy he is, uh, in a pretend way, as if we only are accepted if we are behaving and we know that we're not. But God invites us to be true to him, and so we confess, and we are reminded and rooted in, week after week, the reality of God's love that is perfectly demonstrated in Christ Jesus and that's the celebration that we have. And then we have the opportunity to listen to the one who loves you, God, speak through his word. And it doesn't really matter who it is that is bringing it. Something I've said in congregations that I've served before when I've gotten to the passage in the Old Testament where you're reading about Balaam. God prophesied through Balaam's donkey, or as the King James says, through an ass, and I pointed out that's not really a miracle because he does it here every week, um, <laughs> but it's true. And We come today and we worship God by committing ourselves to hearing what he would say to us through this portion of scripture that we're going to consider, and I may be Balaam's donkey for this congregation. But God's word speaks clearly, and we are called to listen, and in listening, we honor our God. So I invite you now to turn your Bibles to Psalm 131. While you're turning there, just take a moment and say welcome back to Patrick Choi. Pat, you may remember, is a member of Grace Covenant. He's a student at William & Mary. He's been waiting for a while to have his orders to go to basic training to serve in the military, which came to him in the spring, so he dropped out in spring semester, promised to come back. He apparently is true to his word, because he's back today. And what some of you are aware, and some of you may not be aware, but in that process, in the time since Pat is away, Pat also was granted his American citizenship, and so we're glad to have him back. (laughs) Not that there was anything deficient in your Korean citizenship before. I mean, God loves people everywhere, but as Americans, we kind of think that the whole world revolves around us, and that's something we probably need to be repenting of on a regular basis. We come to Psalm 131 this morning, another Psalm of Ascent, again, Psalm of Ascent is a song that was part of a collection of 15 psalms. Psalm 120 through 134, uh, that were part of the songbook when people were going to Jerusalem, the families would be singing, and they express a wide range of emotion and experience. They not only declare the glory of God, but God speaks and even shapes his people through his word. So we come to Psalm 131, very short passage, but full of very practical and, I believe, timely uh, wisdom for us all. Hear the word of the Lord. Our Father, we do come with thanksgiving to you at this hour that you have called us together. That we may approach you without fear because you have reconciled us through Christ. And yet we come still with awe. For your greatness and your glory cannot be fathomed. And yet your nearness is experienced. Be with us now, we pray. Speak to us through this word by your spirit who inspired it in the first place. Enable us not only to learn from it, but let it shape our minds and our hearts and therefore our lives. That we may live as you have called us to live, as you have designed for us to live. We may live with the joy and the peace of fellowship with you. We pray this to your glory and for our good. In Christ, amen. Have you ever thought to yourself, I am way too busy? And then almost at the same time, had another thought, which is, I really need to be doing a whole lot more, or I should be doing a whole lot more. Sometimes those thoughts can engulf us, and they come almost simultaneously, perhaps one after the other and and, 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 and in some sort of sequence. But I suspect that it's an experience that most, if if not all of us, have had at one time or another. None of us is a stranger to the siren song of busyness. The question is not whether or not we know busyness, but how well acquainted with busyness we are. Tim Chester, in a little book that he wrote called The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness, lists a dozen questions that are designed to help us to assess whether or not we suffer from what he calls "hurry sickness. And so while there's a dozen questions, I'm just going to run through several of them and keep them in mind, keep score. You don't have to compare scores, but keep score, and just to see whether or not this might be characteristic of your life, if not now, at different periods. The first question is this. Do you regularly work 30 minutes a day longer than your contracted hours? Or in other words, do you regularly work 30 minutes a day longer than is expected of you? Do you check your work emails and phone messages at home? Has anyone ever said to you, I didn't want to trouble you because I know how busy you are. And just in case somebody is curious, I've already struck out. Um, No foul tips, nothing. Just straight three pitches, I'm, I'm out. Do your family or friends complain about not getting time with you? If tomorrow evening was unexpectedly freed up, would you use it to work or do a household chore? Do you often feel tired during the day or do you find your neck and your shoulders aching? Do you make use of any flexible working arrangements offered by your employers? you have a hobby in which you are actively involved do you often exceed the speed limit while driving why is that one (laughs) so i'll ask rhetorically how did you score Those questions kind of prompt us and give us an indication obviously probably one or two of these is gonna happen from time to time but If these are characteristic, some begging for a response to be yes, although the healthy answer would be no. Others begging for a response of no, although the healthy answer would be yes. If you found yourself with more than just a few of those uh, being answered in the unhealthy way, then you probably are one who is uh, suffering from what Chester refers to as hurry sickness. And we know from doctors about what that kind of a busy life can do for our health. Many of us have experienced what that kind of busyness can do for our relational health with people that are in our lives. But one of the things that I find particularly interesting, challenging, and convicting is this. Kevin DeYoung, in his very little book, and it's even in the parenthesis, that's a very little book, that's the subtitle of it, called Crazy Busy. He reminds us, or he at least makes this point, that the most serious threats of our busyness are not physical, not relational, but they are spiritual. Here's what DeYoung says. When we are crazy busy, we put our souls at risk. The challenge is not merely to make a few bad habits go away. The challenge is to not let our spiritual lives slip away. And so again, we ask ourselves, are we feeling the stress of a busyness because we live in a culture that thrives, craves, encourages, applauds, rewards, crazy, busy, that will give you external affirmation and yet eat at your soul and eat your spiritual life away. The threat may be very, very silent because we don't necessarily recognize it. One of the reasons is everybody we know is pretty much in the same boat. Certainly everybody that we know that is getting ahead, that is succeeding, that is esteemed, respected, is working at a very, very busy pace and we need to recognize that busyness itself having a full schedule itself is not a problem provided that we are busy doing the right things and we're getting the necessary rest and experiencing peace even in the midst of our busyness but it'd be very easy for us to continue going along knowing that something is wrong not recognizing what that is therefore assuming that we must be fine it's just a phase And continuing, not recognizing that our souls are very, very noisy and clanging because we live in a world that is so noisy and so rowdy and distracting. And so we don't look at ourselves and how we are responding to the pace that we are keeping. But we need to recognize that the threat is very real. But what if, what if the way of wisdom is something other than doing more? What if the path to productivity and even fulfillment in life is not through doing more but by cultivating a a rhythm of rest into your weekly and daily schedules? What if the best thing we could do for our children is not to keep up, but to slow down, not to live the frenzied lives of fear-based parenting, fear that our kids will never succeed and never get anything because look what everybody else is doing. fear-based parenting that is marked by the frenetic frenzy of a full schedule. I get the challenge. I've heard the challenges. When our children were young, even uh, we had people telling us this in areas that uh, were um, seeming to be important, some to others, some to us. Well, us meaning me had cousins who live in the mainline area of Philadelphia putting their kids in the best prep schools, private prep schools that you can possibly go to when they were two and three years old because if they didn't, they'd never get into a good school, never get into good college, then what would life be uh, if that happens? And Now, that worked because they were making a whole lot of money. I was pastoring a small country church in North Georgia. So even if I had the money, there wasn't a school there that I could have put them into, but there wasn't one to put them into in the first place, and so, you know, what do you do? So I guess my kids will grow up and I'll be failures. Had people come and tell me that we needed to get our sons, this was our, our oldest was still pretty young, five I guess at the time, and constantly coming and telling us we need to get them enrolled and start playing baseball and, and because if we don't get them playing baseball and basketball and get them enrolled in, into sports, he'd never be able to play, never be able to compete in anything. I heard it so often from one particular lady that I finally, in a very snarky way, said, well, that may be true, unless he has my genes, in which case, he'll be fine. If he has your genes, I get the problem. (laughs) I don't recommend that as a way to respond to people, but I'm just telling you my experience here. But again, we have a culture that keeps speaking to us, you better do this, you better do this, because if you don't, your kids are going to be, and it's just not true get it I understand the pressures. But the good news is this is that there is a better way than constant busyness. And in Psalm 131, God is inviting us to live life more fully, to live the life abundant, to live. the word is Zoe, and it's not a restaurant. They stole that from the Greek here is. To live a life that we desire. And we do so by living it at, at a pace of grace. Now, Psalm 131 is written by a guy who certainly understands the challenges and the stresses of life. We're told at the very beginning, it's written by David, who was the king. Most of you are familiar with his story. I, I have to assume that being king would bring challenges of itself. But David's life, as we've seen it unfolding, has a variety of different challenges. Things that we, if we consider, can enable this psalm, David speaking to us, to speak to us in a practical way. You have job stresses, not only the challenge of being king, but his predecessor wanted to kill him, and so did somebody else that wanted his job. Most of us are probably not physically threatened for somebody wanting our job. You have family dynamic issues. Well, the one who wanted his job was his son who threatened to kill him, and the one who wanted to kill him on the first end was his father-in-law. People don't understand you. Well, this guy who is called to be a man after God's own heart, wanted to worship God, gave himself fully standing before the God, not only metaphorically naked in this case, but literally naked, and his wife mocked him for it. despised him. Some of you have stresses with your children and fear what will happen to your adult children. David not only knew that because of the one who wanted his job and wanted to kill him, but he had the guilt of creating the problem from his own failures in the past. There's not an aspect of life that we don't see in the life of David that we would understand that he's experiencing stresses, challenges, that would rob him of joy and peace, both because of the external factors of this world and because of his own personal failures. And yet what we read here is a man who, rather than screaming out in angst, although he does that elsewhere, offers this prayer to the Lord that in one sense it's not a prayer like we would normally expect. He's not praying to the Lord, Lord, make my soul at peace. But he declares in this prayer, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy. I've calmed my heart. He's declaring in this prayer, in this song, that at this point in time, he has experienced, he is experiencing the peace that we long for and that we need. David Powlison, who is the head of CCEF, Christian uh, Counseling and Education Foundation in Philadelphia, in a marvelous article that he wrote for the Journal of Biblical Counseling um, about 15 years ago, a little more than that, describes Psalm 131 as the show and tell for how to become peaceful inside. And here's what Powelson says as he's analyzing this psalm before he delves in and brings certain practical applications out. He says, amazingly, this man, he's talking about David, is not noisy inside. He isn't busy, busy, busy. He's not obsessed. He's not on the edge. The to-do list and the pressures to achieve don't consume him. Ambition doesn't churn inside. Failure and despair don't haunt him. Anxiety isn't spinning him into a freefall. He isn't preoccupied with thinking up the next thing that he wants to say. Regrets don't corrode his inner experience. Irritation and dissatisfaction don't devour him. He's not stumbling through the minefield of, uh, of blind longings and fears. He's quiet. He's calm, he is contented. We have no idea of the circumstances that David was writing from. This could have happened at any point in his life. And when we look at this particular Psalm, what we will see here today is how guide through David shows us or will guide us through this Psalm as we are able to learn the process quieting our hearts regardless of our circumstances, enabling us to live at the pace of grace. Pallison went on and he asked this question that we all need to be asking ourselves. Are you quiet inside? That's the question that we ask. And as we examine Psalm 131, we'll see how David experienced that. So that we would be able to appropriate that for our own lives I think the first thing we need to see is in the first thing we need to do is we need to engage in a personal assessment of sorts we need to recognize the condition of our own hearts we we see that evident in in verse 1 here see what David says he's speaking about uh, his his heart, and he says from the very beginning, "My heart is not lifted up." In other words, it's not puffed up. My heart—he's not um, thinking too highly of himself. My eyes are not raised too high. In other words, it's not the issue of ambition and climbing. He's not—that's—it's not, that's not what he's looking toward. And I don't occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me meaning that even though he is the king and has the responsibility uh, to lead a particular nation, he recognizes that there are things that he can control and there's things that he can't control. There are things that are his responsibility and there are things that only God can do. And as you look at these characteristics that he's describing here, what we see here is a man who is aware of how he's ticking. And the description of himself here would be the very opposite of one who is consumed with pride. Just the description that his heart is not lifted up. He's not trying to be greater than he is. He's not trying to be something that he's not. He's not swollen with pride. But we we see somebody that, rather than being proud, is somebody who is content, who is, in many ways, very humble. And just recognizing the characteristics that David analyzes within himself. And at this point in time, as he's expressing, he's showing us something that's an important principle that we need to recognize. And that's this that I had heard somebody say, wrote it down some time ago. Can't remember who it was, so this is brilliance is now mine, um, but uh, it just didn't originate with me. But a quiet, unhurried life is less a matter of time management than it is a matter of heart management. And most of us know this because we have had periods in our life where we're very, very busy. Our calendars are full. We we go from one thing to the next, and yet we have not felt overwhelmed by the stress. We, We didn't tank. And we need to be reminded that in paying attention to our calendars, which we need to do from time to time, and in paying attention to our time and the clock, which we need to do from time to time, we must never neglect our hearts because while time management is of some value, heart management is of tremendous and ultimate value. And we see that evidenced in what David is saying here. And we need to recognize what david seems to be recognizing as the potential in his life probably because he is experiencing it just like we do from time to time but one of the greatest enemies that we have to peace in our life is pride see our pride is the opposite here david pallison in another article wrote what he calls the anti psalm 131 and he does absolutely look at just read through this thing and just go the exact opposite my heart is lifted up and my eyes are looking too high and and so these things are all descriptions of, of pride. And it is the pride in my life that leads me to become over busy because I become a slave to what I, uh, people will think of me. I become a slave to the uh, idea that my identity and my worth is rooted in what I accomplish. So therefore it's pride that gives me the lack of wisdom, so take on, take on, take on, never having the ability to say no. It's pride that makes me think that I am, I'm not trying to be profound, I just lost my word. Um... (laughs) You can use that pregnant pause in positive ways, I just didn't, that's just not it. Um... I'm not indispensable. We get this not only from the word, but sometimes from the, in the world and in all of our pursuits, but even some of our spiritual pursuits. The whole idea that, you know, you must, you must, because you're the example. If you won't, who will? And I regularly come back to an example in world history, in twentieth-century history, as the gospel was being taken to the people in China in the early part of the twentieth century. A number of missionaries that were serving there were bearing fruit, some of whom Carolyn's ancestors were among the first uh, Westerners to go. Uh, Some you've heard of, like Eric Little, the Scottish Olympian who went to give his life uh, to the Chinese. He grew up there as well. And, And their gospel was bearing fruit, but still not making a real dent in the population as a whole. The outbreak of World War II as the Japanese came and took over and put all the missionaries into concentration camps and others they expelled from the country. And ultimately, when the war was over, uh, the gospel was not allowed there. No missionaries. That was illegal for believers. And so what is to become of that country? And for decades, we had no idea because it was closed until Nixon went in behind. And when Nixon went in in the early 70s and soon after some evangelical church leaders went in to see what's going on, what they had found was that the church in the absence of us who are indispensable had exploded far more than any other time in history. But we get anxious about what we must do. Therefore, it robs us from the joy of doing what we are able to do, and even what we are called to do. And David seems to recognize that we have this tendency to consume ourselves with things that are too great for us, that, uh, that we, we, we worry about things that we have no control on, about. as if it's up to me to fix all of America's problems. I mean, I have the answer. Just ask me. I'll tell you what the problem, how to fix them. And yet we divide friendships because it's my responsibility to do something that God didn't put on me. We worry about what we can't control, whether that deals with the world, with the other people in our lives, or even our own lives. What we see here is first is we need to be aware of our own hearts. And we need to recognize those signs that we are experiencing pride. And not only do we need to recognize it, but we, need, we must resolve to resist the pride waning in our lives. So that like David, we are able to say, my heart's not puffed up. My eyes are not lifted up, but I'm calmed. Now, easier said than done. So the second thing that we see from David here is not only do we need to engage in a personal assessment process and be able to evaluate our our hearts for any indications of pride, which is a killer, we also have a choice to make. And... The choice that we make is to choose peace. That's what we see David doing here in Psalm 131 in verse two. Notice what he's saying here. I have calmed and quieted my soul. It's something that he has done. It's a decision that he made. He must have recognized that there was problem He must have been experiencing a period of time where his heart was not calm and quiet. He realized that wasn't healthy. That's not the way he wanted to live. And so he made a decision. He made a choice. I can live this way, frenetically, or I can calm my heart. And he says that at this point in time that he's writing, I have calmed my heart. That statement itself tells me a couple of things. One is that the idea of living at peace is not a constant state that we're going to experience in this particular life. It wasn't what the psalm is saying. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to have made that resolution. Second, the idea of calming our hearts involves some degree of self-discipline and self-mastery because he's saying, I There's something that I have done here. There's an exercise of the will that he chose to engage in. He made this conscious choice. And what I think this does is it reflects the responsibility that each of us has to cultivate this condition in our own hearts. We don't do it by mere positive thinking. David does this, and we'll see how in a moment, but he does it by God's grace. But it is not just... God, give me grace that my heart would be calmed. Well, that didn't work. God, take away all these circumstances that are causing me angst. Well, that didn't work, really. Okay, God, just bless me so that I don't even care about all these things that are going around because I'll be above it. I'll be untouchable, whether that's rich, rich in relationship, whatever it is, just that we become numb to the world around us, and then we consider that to be peace. That's the way, I don't know about you, but that's the way that I'm inclined to pray if I'm not guided by what God is doing here but what I think we see David doing here and what the implications are is it means that we need to be sensitive to what's going on inside of our own hearts and inside of our own minds and then recognize whatever it is that's causing the noise and the stress and the angst and anything that distracts us from the blessing that God has given to us with his presence we, we need to be aware of that We need to avoid the easy excuses like, okay, it's just a season. It will go away. Or just believing that peace is outside of our control in any way. David seems to be suggesting something otherwise here. I have calmed my soul. And then he gives us an illustration of what it's like. He says, my, my soul right now is like a weaned child on his mother's lap. And the picture I think that he's painting for is one of contentment, one of trust, one of joy, one of comforts. And the key is the weaning child, or the weaned child as opposed to the pre-weaned or the weaning child because those of you who are weaning, I can hear today. I don't know that your life is characterized by peace and comfort and all things. Now, it is a season, so forget what I just said a moment ago. That is a season, because that goes through time. But the picture he's saying here is that the unweaned child or the child going through the weaning process, there are difficulties, there are hardships, and so we're not giving the picture of that child because that child is learning to trust, demanding, cranky, quick-tempered if they don't get what they want when they want it part because they need, and they don't know better. They just know instinctively. But the picture that David has here is the one who has made this decision to experience peace recognizing the noise in their life, things that would rob them of their peace, the end result is what we desire as one who is able to spend time in the presence of God, comforted by God's presence, enjoying God's presence, knowing that, yeah, we have needs, but God will provide all of our needs. We're just enjoying the reality of God's presence, whatever the circumstance, wherever we are in this world. And this is the picture of the Christian life that David is describing when he is saying Here's what my heart is like, here's what my soul is like. It's like a child, weaned, sitting on his mother's lap. But it doesn't come simply because you say, peace. This is not a demonstration of the power of positive thinking here. It doesn't happen simply because this is what we desire. Most of us know that. David gives us the key. In verse 3, aware of the things that distract him, he now turns his attention and he invites everyone who belongs to the Lord to do the same thing. When he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He's the king, therefore representative of Israel in, in one sense. He's part of the people Israel, meaning it's the, the people of God. It's... Uh, and and therefore applies to the people of God today. You know, we're we're told in Galatians that if you are in Christ, you're an heir of Abraham, uh, and therefore all the promises of God belong to you. And so this is an invitation to you, and this is an invitation to me, even as David is using this to remind himself, here's the answer, here's where peace comes, hope in God. And so it begs the question, where do we put our hope? And very often in the most stressful times, I put my hope in achievements. Whether they are great achievements or whether they are just achieving whatever tasks that are on my plate. Hopefully achieving them with some level of success. So my hope is put in myself in those circumstances. Sometimes hope is in others. I recognize I can't do something on my own or maybe not be able to do anything else, but there are friends, people who are engaged or at least seem to be aware, and so I hope they can come through for me. Sometimes we put our hope in stuff. If I can work hard enough, invest wisely enough, then the time will come that I don't have to work hard at all And I won't need anything from anyone because I have enough stuff, whatever that stuff is. The answer to what do you put your hope in is as varied as as we are creative, and so I don't want to go through a litany of things. But David is focusing our attention, and he's saying here's where you put your hope. You want to experience peace. Well, those things may be part of God's provision for you. Those things may be ways in which you experience the joy of the peace that he gives. They are not the ultimate focus that we ought to be looking to if we're going to be experiencing peace. He's saying, people of God, if you want this peace that you've now recognized that you're missing, you've decided that you're going to have peace, to calm your hearts, hope in God, hope in the Lord. Now, part of our problem sometimes is we sometimes think that this is what we're doing this for God, that, this, that God's up there. And we're laboring, attempting great things for God and that, you know, if we don't achieve something, God's going to say, "Ah, oh, you know, not bad. Is that all you did today? Well, maybe we can do better tomorrow. And a lot of our stress is rooted in the reality that we have a wrong conception of what God is like. David is seeming to be aware of what later the Dutch theologians would put down on paper and saying hope in God and was reflected in the Heidelberg Catechism when they declare this. The question is what is your only comfort but also your hope in life and in death? And the response is my only hope, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free. See, he set me free from the slavery that my pride continually continues to plunge me into. He set me free from the expectations that other people might place upon me, and that I'm a failure if I don't meet their expectations, and I have worth and value only if I meet those expectations. Jesus here who has come and identified with us so that he may take our place so that we can then be identified with him, he has set us free through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that Psalm 131 is ultimately about Jesus even more than it is about David. Because while David has experienced this, Jesus lived this, and he lived this fully, completely. David had it periodically. He's showing us that we can cultivate this in our lives, but this is the reality of Jesus's life. I mean, just think about the highlights of it. Jesus Christ humbled himself to become nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on the cross. And at the moment of his greatest angst, he calmed and quieted his own soul. We get to peek behind how he dealt what he did. He's praying to the Father father if there's any other way take this cup from me in other words if there's any other way to do what we need to do i don't want to go to this cross it's going to hurt and even more than that he understood the nature of the cross that he expressed on the cross is that he would be for a moment forsaken by god for the only time in all of history he was forsaken so that we will never be But even as he's offering that prayer, if there's any other way, this is how we know. And we're told that he was sweating blood. His response is, but nevertheless, not this prayer, but whatever your will is. Jesus was trusting himself, hoping in God, who he knew would never fail. He never doubted the goodness of the Father. And here David, inspired by the Spirit, is saying, people of God, hope in the Lord. We have here a simple invitation to be thinking of the one who died for you and who rose for you and who even this day is living for you. And with all grace and all authority, he is in a sense saying to you and to me with his arms open wide, come to me all who labor and are heavily burdened and I will give you rest. The question that we have to ask ourselves today is whether we will take the Lord's invitation and whether we will take the Lord at his word. Do we believe in the midst of our busyness, borderline burned out, that we can find rest for our souls? Do you believe that it can be found in Jesus? And are you willing to? So here we have a process that we need to reconcile because we're all subject to this from time to time. We need to be aware what's going on in our mind and our, our hearts. Those are the parts of Hebrew, the soul. It's the inside of who we are. It's the who we are that's not the physical. We need to resolve. Do we want to continue living like this or do we want the peace that God promises? We want the peace that God promises. that we see from David, illustrated perfectly in Jesus and in Jesus himself, is that we... Are invited to, called to, commanded to, hope in the Lord. For he is the one who gives peace and rest to us, even in the midst of a loud, rowdy world. Father, speak to us this day. For many of us here are in need of being shaped, being freed from our angst, anxiety, the pressures of life whether it is the schedules themselves that need to be reordered or not, may we turn to you, Lord, being honest about where our minds, our hearts, our eyes are. Resolve to resist the siren song of pride and hope in you. Grant us peace we pray in Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand.